Hello once again. Luke 16 finds us continuing an extended parable, in a sense, of many parables of Jesus' teaching uh, to the disciples and to the Pharisees. And remember, if you will, last week, actually the last two weeks for that matter, we have been talking about how Jesus has been accused of being too friendly, too loose, too generous with his time, with forgiveness, with God's mercy and grace to the outcasts of society. Even just his association with the people which the Pharisees, by definition, would never ever be close to or be a part of has caused some Pharisees to grumble and to complain to condemn Jesus for this. Well, many of us who have studied Jesus and his teachings know that Jesus is here for the outcasts, and we know that that really means all of us. All of us are outcasts at one point or another because of the result and the consequence of sin. And Jesus has come to restore that relationship, to bring in from the outcasts into relationship, into, that's what the Old Testament word for righteousness means, into right relationship with God. And so he came into the society who did not value justice and mercy, who did not value the outcasts of society, to really manifest that point that I'm here for those who need me, who seek me, who want me. I will restore their relationship while you, O Pharisees, O leaders of Israel, who expect to be at the table, who expect by your position to have a seat with God, who expect God to come running after you because of your position, you may not be there. You may not be who you think you will be in the kingdom if you aren't who you are, if you aren't that now in the present inaugurated kingdom. And so in Luke 15, as we covered last week, he tells three lost parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And the focuses were on our part in helping God fulfill that seeking, in seeking the sheep that has gone astray, in seeking the coin, and seeking the son, being a part of God's celebration, being a part and realizing that God's character is to seek who that is lost or whom that is lost, and to celebrate and to restore that. And Jesus in the teaching here is a direct critique of the Pharisees by not doing that with the people who were right in front of them, not see inviting those at the dinner table, not seeking after the lost sheep of Israel, not seeking after the viable coins, not seeking after um, those who are lost, and instead being more like the elder son and complaining about that generosity and that characteristic rather than being a part of it. What comes next is arguably one of the most confusing, debated, and seemingly nonsensical parables, and debatedly, that Jesus tells. And that's the parable of the dishonest manager, the unrighteous steward, the unrighteous, unjust manager, whatever, there are multiple ways of, of titling it. And it's already been read, so I'm not going to rehash it, uh, to read it through. I am going to go through it and talk about a few things. You who have watched me for a while know I usually like to go through the passage, comment on a few things, come back around and look big picture then. So, let's do that. We have a manager who, by law, was keeping track, same thing as we have now in our society, keeping track of another person's finances, another person's farm, another person's accounts. Well, he's apparently not very 
good at him. Verse 2, he called him, and what's this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Because why? He was wasting his possessions. He was wasting his money. He apparently wasn't very good at this, or he was vibing in some some not very good business decisions. We don't know the context of this exact thing. Now, the parable isn't concerned with those details. Keep in mind, we can focus on that, but the parable doesn't, so we shouldn't either. So what does the man do in verse 3? The manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I'm not ashamed to beg. He's realizing his position, and he says, I decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now keep that in mind, that this is, everything that's about to happen is done out of self-interest, out of self-motivation, of self care in a sense not just self-care but of self-interest and what does he do he summoned his master's debtors one by one said to the first how much do you owe my master he said a hundred measures of oil and he said to him take down your bill sit down and quickly write 50 and he said to another how much do you owe a hundred measures of wheat he said to him take your bill and write 80. now first thing i want to comment on these is that these uh the debts that he forgives are 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 pretty big they're really large. Uh, for example, 100 baths is equal to about 800 to 900 gallons of oil, which is a, quite a few uh, trees. And it's actually equal to about three years wages for the average worker. Now, let's think of for a second, the average salary in Corvallis is somewhere around 50 to $60,000. Let's just say 50 just for ease of math. This is him forgiving a debt of $150,000 worth of merchandise, worth of product, worth of, of finances. That's quite a bit. Even if you're, you know, maybe not if you're Amazon or Walmart, but even to a small business owner uh, in Corvallis, that's quite a bit. That's no small thing. And he does the same thing with the second debt. 100 core of wheat would be about 1,100 bushels, or 1,000 to 11 bushels. This one is about seven and a half years of wages for the average worker. That's 300, and if your average salary is $50,000, that's what? 350, $370,000 worth in our present society, worth of debt, worth of product, worth of debt forgiveness. This is no small thing. That he's doing it's quite a bit <laughs> it would definitely mean something to whoever he's forgiving the debtors to wouldn't it mean something to you <laughs> now there's a lot that's made of who are these people are they wholesale workers are they are they people that he's in business with the parable is not concerned about those details so neither are we going to be concerned about those details now the thing that we do have to realize is that what he what is he doing here he is taking what his master is owed and basically stealing it away. Now, there are, there are interpretations that, well, this is actually the, the interest on what he was owed, that, that, that they couldn't have done that, they shouldn't have done that, so he's not really losing anything. That doesn't really hold up because the text does, says nothing to prepare us for that. And if that was that he's not really losing anything uh, from you know something he was going to get anyway, the text should say something. It doesn't say anything about that. And as a scholar notes, the reader can never be left in ignorance without paying the price of ending up with a warped interpretation. 
without any other information from the text, which we don't have, says the scholar, the reader has to accept that the manager acted dishonestly. And plus, why is it that if he's not really gaining anything, he's actually doing something, canceling something he's not supposed to be doing anyway, why is he still dishonest? That interpretation doesn't hold up at all. He's doing something which is actually, in essence, stealing from his master. He's taking the profits or taking what his master is owed and on his own volition is canceling them. Why would he do this? Well, other interpretations talk about the fact that he's doing it to win favor. Well, with who? Uh, maybe that this is teaching that we need to entrust everything we have to God's mercy. Some people think that he's being ironic uh, with the business season of the day. Some people think that he's condemning the rich. Uh, some people, actually some scholars think this is, a, this is some sort of comic about the outrageous actions of a man to hit home a point. See, all those don't really hit it. All those are trying to explain around what he's doing, and especially in the fact that even though he's essence stealing from his master, the master commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. In normal society, this master, this manager, he's not a slave, otherwise he probably would have been beaten. He would have been fired. He might have even been on trial for stealing a large amount of money, over half a million dollars being established in our modern day amount. How can a master command the shrewdness of someone who's acting completely dishonestly? Because that's what we have to say. This, there's no other way around it. We have, we have two theories. The master is either praised because he did something just and effective, or he is praised because he did something unjust, unrighteous, and effective. I could go into it. Uh, I invite you to follow up if you want. Why a lot of the major theories about no, this is just this is a metaphor about about only God's mercy. The master didn't really need it. He's not really doing anything wrong. All those don't hold up at all. We have to conclude that this manager is doing something unjust but effective. Some people actually also say that maybe this parable is actually more about condemnation of the rich, because otherwise why would the master, oh, I don't need to be that rich, so thank you for, in essence, putting them in my place. Now, Luke and Jesus have very few things to say about good about the rich. Jesus has the famous, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Just later on in Luke 16, we have the parable the rich man and Lazarus. Luke is not very kind to rich people. Jesus is not very kind to rich people. Although, we'll see later, riches itself is not a sin. And actually, the church depends on people with means because giving is a spiritual discipline that is commended and lauded. Paul depended. Jesus depended on people who had the means that were willing to give what they have out of what they had. Not just those who gave up everything, but those who were had to be able to give to support others. Giving is a spiritual gift. And this parable doesn't say anything about that. It's the simple fact that the parable mentions he is rich and that the manager is managing his money. It says nothing else at all. Some people say this is about the master's conversion to a better way of thinking. Also, we don't see anything about that. 
the parable cannot include, or the, the interpretation of the parable cannot include what it doesn't say. We have to only go on what the parable says and how the parable presents itself. Anything that includes what is not there is almost certainly going to be wrong. Basic parable interpretation. So, where are we? We have a manager who got himself in some trouble and he cheats his master out of some profits in order to ingratiate himself, in order to make himself seem better to his clients and everyone, everyone, master, the narrator, the hearers, even the people who benefited in this can see he's unrighteous. He's not doing something that is ethical. We have to conclude that, I just want you to see. Now go on to see what Jesus says. After in the parable, Jesus says that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Look at what Jesus says. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What? This is where this parable goes off the rails, if it hasn't already. Let's delve into this. Clearly, in this parable, the manager, the steward, is a child of this age, of this present age. Might even go so far as to say the world. And his actions belong in that arena, opposed to the children of light. You see, this is where we begin to understand how the parable is to be interpreted. This is a contrast parable. This is contrasting something which is being done versus something else that maybe should be done. And we out here we see in verse 8, we see that there are two ages, two worlds, two ways of doing things. And this is actually a pretty safe interpretation because we know that Jesus talks about this age and the age to come, the world and the kingdom, sons of uh, Satan, actually, in John, if you want to go that far, and the sons of light, children of the earth, children of the world, children of light. We know that there are this, dis that this distinction here. So this is a safe interpretation already. But here's the thing we don't like. This statement implies for the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. That statement says flat out that since the children of light already exist and they should be living according to their generation, the praise that Jesus has for the children of this age, the present age, is an accusation, is a condemnation, is a rebuke against the children of light. Do you see that? In that one statement, he presents a huge contrast. The sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What's the reverse? The sons of light are not shrewd at dealing with their own generation than are the sons of this age. Ouch, Jesus. What does that mean? Well, connect it back to what he just said. He's saying that the steward, the, the manager, as a child of the present age, he knew how to handle the system that he was in to his best advantage and to the best advantage of people 
who could benefit him. Pretty obvious. The accusation then is that the children of light do not know how to live wisely within their system. If you want to put a theological bent on this, Jesus is practically saying, and this is to his exact audience, keep in mind, that the current children of light, Israel, they do not know how to live in keeping with the kingdom which is present and being inaugurated, and that is come with Jesus. Ouch. <laughs> And he continues on in verse 9, and this is where it seems to be the most nonsensical. Everything else we can, we can kind of parse out a little bit, but what on earth does this mean? In verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so when it fails you, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. That seems so anti-kingdom. It seems ridiculous. I mean, didn't Jesus, didn't you say, don't store up for yourselves um, treasures of the world? You know, instead store up... What does this mean? Well, it all has to do with understanding what he's talking about here. Unrighteous wealth, or wealth, uh, the term mammon in a lot of translations, is actually synonymous with the word property, things in general, usually. And it also usually carries a very negative connotation. Here's the thing, it doesn't just mean property, or doesn't just mean money in the broader context, it basically means that in which anything places, that, let me say it again, that in which one places their trust, anything in which one places their trust. That makes sense? Mammon, God, this is getting ahead. One cannot serve God and mammon. Doesn't just mean money. Doesn't just mean property. But in general, it means one cannot serve God and anything else which you trust with your salvation, with your life, with your whatever. So, in verse 12 here, or verse, sorry, verse 9, by means of unrighteous wealth, we have a couple of options that we can say what, what that means. Does it mean money that or property or anything that comes this is property and money obviously in the context of the parable does it mean um that belongs simply to this world probably not is it money that tends towards unrighteousness meaning you use it for unrighteous things maybe or is it money and property which then tends to corrupt that's most likely the best interpretation because he commends him for his use of it meaning he's handled it well in his given situation. A case can be made for all three of those options, but the last two are preferable, and I think in this case, the last one, the last option, money which tends to corrupt, mammon which tends to corrupt, money and property, possessions which tend to corrupt. I think this makes most sense both in the context of parable and also what comes next. Now let's rephrase that. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of money that tends to corrupt, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now do you hear what he's saying there in a sense? He's saying that this money which tends to corrupt, this property which tends to corrupt, this mammon which tends to corrupt, use it to what? 
to make friends. Use it for relationships so that when it fails, and that actually can mean a lot of things, <laughs> believe it or not, I'm not going to get into that. Um, when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. And I can either, some people think that means God, some people think that means um, people, some people think it means a church. I think there's a little bit of everything here. Make friends for yourself, use it for the benefit of relationship. When it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings, meaning people that you affected with that, maybe even the church with that. It's ambiguous, but it's not quite the point of the parable about who. The point of the parable is what you're doing with the mammon. Let's read on a little bit, because this explains it a bit more. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is then dishonest in much. If, then, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? The reason I think all that connects is that there's actually a wordplay here that's not obvious in English and Greek, but in Hebrew and Aramaic, all three of these words, faithful and trust, let's see, faithful and trust and riches and true, uh, honest, uh, all actually come from the same root word as mammon. And so we don't catch it, but in Jesus speaking in Aramaic and the Hebrew, if they were to use that in, in, in Greek, in, in the synagogue and such, they would have caught that wordplay. In essence, it's saying that faithful in trusting what is true in the mammon, he's saying that all these have to line up. All of these actually have to be according to the same thing. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another, who will give you that which is own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other, who will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This seems offhand to be pointing exclusively towards maybe eternal security, but it's also talking about using what's in the present, which maybe tends to corrupt. We all know, I think, that money, property, mammon can be construed as an idol. It can be the thing which people will place their trust. It can be the thing which people will, will run after and go after. So maybe a better way of saying some of these things is make friends, use what you have, Use what your possessions, use your the things around you to make friends by use of that, which usually is so easily put to wrong use. And that seems to make sense. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. Meaning if you have a little but you use it for the wrong ends, you're going to use a lot for the wrong ends. But if you have a little and you use it well for that, that end, you will use a lot well in that end. Is that making sense to you, hopefully? Now remember that I said that this is a, a contrasting parable. On the, we knew that back from verse 8, that the sons of world are shrewd in dealing with their current generation, and the sons of light are not. What is the contrast which Jesus is pointing out here? He's pointing out that just as the steward acted in such an outrageous way, such an extreme way to safeguard his own well-being, to safeguard his own um, future, to safeguard his own relationships, Jesus is in essence saying, how much more 
should you, who are called to the kingdom economics, to the kingdom ethics, to kingdom living, how much more should you use what you have, and by you we mean we here almost, how much more should you use what you have for the eternal well-being, not just of you, but of others around you? How much more should you use what you have for eternal life? How much more should you use what you have for the kingdom? That's the point of the parable. It's not Jesus condemning or condoning dishonesty here. But it's the nature of the action that he took and why that Jesus is using as a contrasting point to say, if this dude, if this selfish worldly dude is willing to do this, how much more should we, who have the security of the Eternal Father, who have the love of the Eternal Father, who are blessed and knowing everything comes from God, how much more should we be using those for the sake of eternal life? Dishonesty here is not endorsed. And there are other parables. Rudeness, people waking up in the middle of the night, uh, lack of respect with the unjust judge, friend at midnight. They're not condoned or condemned, they just are. What is commended here, what Jesus says is a good thing, is the action born of wisdom in view of the situation. In the steward's context, he has a self-preserving ethic, he sees a business opportunity to make himself look good, and his wisdom is, all right, if I'm going to be fired anyway, I'm going to cut my losses here, I'm going to make sure that I have a landing point outside of my job, and the manager commends him, and the master commends him for that. Jesus is saying, if he's willing to do that to preserve himself, you who are already preserved, or should already be preserved in the kingdom, how much more ought you to use God's blessings for the sake of doing that for those around you, for the sake of the kingdom? Now, go back to the full context here. Jesus has been teaching and trying to explain that the Pharisees are missing the kingdom by their exclusion of the outcasts with even how they've been blessed or think they've been blessed. Remember, connect this all the way back to the, to the grand banquet, to the lost parables. How would this have struck them? Actually, go down a little bit farther. And the Pharisees, verse 14, who are lovers of money, mammon, heard all these things and ridiculed, ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees see this and think, Oh, Jesus, if this is how you view money, you are. You, you're ridiculous. You're a madman. That's not how you view money. And he says, That's not the point. You value your money, you value your status, you value your fill-in-the-blank. And what you value, your exclusion, your set-apartness, it's an abomination to God. Because you are not using what you have in any way, shape, or form in any kind of wisdom for the kingdom. He's saying that they have been trusting in the Pharisees and the disciples they have been trusting in the wrong mammon. Their holiness, set-apartness, has been misplaced and misguided as they have been set apart against those to whom they ought to have been including. And by including them then, using what they have for their benefit to take care of those around them 
to further God's kingdom, not the kingdom of this age. So see, this fits in. Because it's not about the dishonesty of the steward. The dishonesty simply is. But this parable is a motivation to act. Act in wisdom according to this situation. Jesus has a situation which is dishonest and not good, but he's contrasting saying, you who are in a better situation, if this guy's willing to act this way, what excuse do you have? So I think there's a couple points of application from this. One, the obvious application is how much more should we use our possessions, our money, our church building, our houses, our properties, or anything. How much more should we use our possessions for eternal benefit? Or do we trust our money, our houses, our clothes, our food to be what we need and nothing more? Now, maybe not consciously, but do we act like that sometimes? sometimes? How much more should we use our possessions and our money for kingdom purposes? And I think this is actually something which we could ask of the church, meaning the congregation, meaning what we give. I'm not saying don't give to our congregation. Giving, first and foremost, is a, is a discipline between you and God. But it's worth asking. It's worth you, as a member of Circle, asking, are we using our money for kingdom purposes? How much are we using our money for kingdom purposes? Are we really using it for things that have eternal benefit? Number three, how much more should we value relationships over mammon? I think this is what's getting into the heart of this parable, especially from the rest of the context. The lost parables are all about restoring relationships. And this dishonest steward valued relationships, knew the value of relationships over some lost money and even his firing of his job. He made sure that his relationships were good and used what he had to make sure those relationships were good. The Pharisees had no relationship with the outcasts. How much more, Jesus is asking, if this man, if this man is willing to cheat one another, someone else, because they know the value of relationships over money, how much more should we use the money God has freely given us for the benefit of others in God's name? How much more should we value relationships over anything else that we trust in? First and foremost, our relationship with God. But you can't love God and not value relationships with others, brothers and sisters, as well as relationships with those who will come to know God through you. What gets in the way of relationships, not just between us as brothers and sisters, but what gets in the way of relationships between us, individual Christians, and non-Christians? What gets in the way of the relationship between the church, the congregation, and the world? How much more should we value relationships over anything else that we tend to trust in? The parable is meant to motivate action. The question is, what shall you do? What shall we do with what we have? 
that is wise according to kingdom economics, kingdom ethos, and the current kingdom in light of the future kingdom that we know is coming because Jesus is raised from the dead. The beautiful thing about this church is that we don't have to be dishonest. <laughs> but we do have, we must have action in kingdom wisdom or else we're not truly serving God as our only master but I invite you this week dwell upon this question what shall you do when we do in using what we have for the kingdom that we're not doing now grace to you all